Luke chapter 2. Um, we were talking in prayer meeting Wednesday night as we were praying about the messages about the um, kind of the, the components, the ingredients, I don't know what to call it, of studying narrative passages of Scripture. Luke's Gospel is historical narrative. He is telling us a story, and he wants us to understand the significance of the events in history that surround the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So anytime you study narrative, I, I think there are three things that we all always to pay attention to, questions we should ask ourselves. First of all, what is the story? What are the events? What's the sequence? How did this happen? What's the significance of the history? And that kind of becomes self-evident, but it's one of the things that we need to dig out of the passage. The second thing is, this history occurs in the Bible. It's one of the four Gospels. And it's a history surrounding the person of Jesus Christ. It's given to us by inspiration. So the second question that we need to ask ourselves is, what is the theological significance? What does this story tell us about God, about ourselves, about life? What are what is the teaching that comes out of the historical background? And then the third thing that we ought always to be asking ourselves when we study the scriptures is, and what does God want to say to me right now in this moment? This story was written <clears throat> 2,000 years ago. But we're living today, September 29th, 2013, and we ought always ask the question, Lord, what is your message to me today? What do you want to say to me personally out of this? How does it apply? So those are three questions that as we go through Luke's gospel, I hope that you will keep in mind, and I hope as well this morning that I can uh, answer some of those questions for you. I titled this morning's sermon, Why Bethlehem? And some of you that know your Old Testament pretty well or know the background of the story pretty well will immediately give me the knee-jerk response. Well, because Micah 5.2 prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Okay, but why Bethlehem? Why is that significant? And why is that the place that God chose for Jesus to be born. Yes, Micah tells us about it 700 or so years or 500 or so years before Christ, but why Bethlehem? And uh, he liked the name. Well, uh, maybe, maybe. There's part, there's part to the name. So uh, let's read the story from Luke chapter 2, and then we'll get into the question. Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, reading from the New American Standard Bible. Now, in those days, a decree... Whoa, <laughs> I touched my iPad and it blew up. 
Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths, and she laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Why Bethlehem? Well, let me tell you a little bit about Bethlehem in general, so that you kind of get a picture in your mind. Um, if you look at a map of Palestine, and you're just kind of looking from the bird's eye view, uh, over to the west is the Mediterranean Sea, and over to the east and north is the Sea of Galilee, the River Jordan, and then the Dead Sea. And Jerusalem, uh, in between that Jordan Valley and the Mediterranean, there's uh, a hill country that kind of comes up and forms, it wouldn't, I don't know if you'd call it a mountain range. It's not terribly tall, but it's tall enough, and it goes down kind of toward the Jordan side of that section. Jerusalem is down there near the Dead Sea, and Jerusalem is at about 2,700 feet of elevation, and Bethlehem is about six miles south and west of Jerusalem. So if you're thinking about where we are this morning, and you go south and west about six miles, you're approximately in Crystal Lake, the north part of Crystal Lake over by Route 14. So you can kind of get an idea in your mind about how far it is, and it's a distance that almost anyone could walk uh, within half a day, or really a few hours if they were in good shape, and most people in those days were in pretty good shape, so uh, it wasn't that far. Six miles southwest of Jerusalem. One of the features about Bethlehem is that it was a very fertile area uh, compared to the surrounding region. I mean, it is, an, it is arid and somewhat desert, but nonetheless, compared to the surrounding region, it, it was more fertile than many of the other uh, areas, and it was a tremendously good choice for uh, grazing sheep. And so, as a matter of fact, Bethlehem had been a place for shepherds and sheep for more than a thousand years. All the way back to David's time and before. In fact, we'll get to it in a moment, but Bethlehem was called the city of David because that's where King David came from. And what was he before he was anointed king? He was a shepherd, and he took care of the sheep. However, Bethlehem was not merely noted for a place where you could raise sheep, but it was particularly noted because of its proximity to Jerusalem as a place where special sheep could be raised. In fact, it's the place where 
the sacrificial lambs for the temple service were raised. If you go back and study the Old Testament worship law, worship ritual, you know that uh, in the temple, uh, for tabernacle and temple, that there were two sacrifices required daily that had to be lambs without any kind of blemish or, or injury or spot. And so if you add that up, you needed more than 700 lambs in a year, yearlings without spot or blemish, that would be suitable for the temple sacrifice. You couldn't raise all of those lambs in Jerusalem, but the closest, most likely place to be raising them was in a fertile territory not far away, which, in fact, was Bethlehem. In the first century, and even before the first century, Bethlehem was so equated with the place of raising the temple sacrificial lambs that to say Bethlehem automatically brought to mind temple sacrifice and shepherds. It clearly, everyone made that connection. We don't make that connection because we don't know this history. But they made the connection. All you had to do was talk about Bethlehem and every Jew thought about the sacrificial lambs of the temple. In fact, in addition to the daily sacrifices, there were travelers who came in for the festivals and particularly for, for Passover. And um, if you were traveling with your family, you didn't want to have to drive livestock along with you. And so it was customary for those that lived out of Jerusalem to travel to Jerusalem and to purchase the lambs for their family offering out of Bethlehem. Those were the very lambs that they would uh, prepare and certify and would bring them closer to the temple area. In fact, there was a tower there that the shepherds used uh, called the Tower of the Flock, are also known as Migdal Eater. And in Migdal Eater, at the base of the tower was a lambing area where the shepherds could bring the pregnant ewes that were about to give birth. And in the base of the tower, it was kind of ceremonially clean. And when the lambs were born, the shepherds because these were destined to be potentially sacrificial lambs if they were without blemish, the shepherds would wrap them in cloths, their legs and, and uh, whatever, to kind of contain them so they wouldn't injure themselves, and they would lay them on a, like a sepulcher area hewn out of the wall to where the priests could inspect them to make sure that they had no blemishes. Do you ever wonder how the shepherds knew where to go the night that the angels visited them and said, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, and you will find this baby 
swaddled with cloths and lying in the sepulcher of the lambing area. And they knew exactly where to go to find him. He would have been probably in that base of the tower of the flocks in Migdal, and they knew exactly what to anticipate. Why Bethlehem? Well, when we delve further into the story, we find that Bethlehem goes all the way back to the time of Israel and Jacob and Rachel. As a matter of fact, Rachel died on the way to Bethlehem, giving birth to Benjamin. And she is buried near this place. And it says that Jacob traveled onward um, to the, the tower of Migdal, where he spent the night. And that land in that day was called Ephra or Ephratah, and also Bethlehem. Ephratah means a fruitful place, but Bethlehem means the house of bread. It was the place also that in the story of Ruth, you remember Naomi's husband died and then her sons who had married daughters from the Moabites, both of them died. And Naomi said, I'm going to go back to my hometown of Bethlehem, where I hear that the famine has ended and there is food that is plenty. And on her way back, she said to her daughters-in-law, you go back to your families, you don't have to go with me. But Ruth would not do that. And Ruth stayed with Naomi and went to in those famous lines that we often quote, uh, your people will be my people, your God shall be my God, and I will stay with you until the day that we die and I am buried there myself. I'm not leaving your side. And so she went with Naomi back to the land of Bethlehem, and that's where, uh, in God's providence, Ruth met Boaz. Boaz uh, became the father of Obed after marrying Ruth in God's uh, providence, and Obed became the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David, who became the king. And so, from the shepherd beginnings of David, the shepherd boy, came the king of Israel, the greatest king of Israel, uh, king David. And God promised to David that from your line will come one, who one day will rule in righteousness and truth and whose kingdom will have no end. Hence, Micah says, And you, Bethlehem, are not least among the cities of Judah, because out of you will rise a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The great shepherd king was King Jesus of the lineage of David who was going to be born there. There was a time in David's life, uh, during his lifetime, you know, he, he kind of came to fame when they were on the battlefield and Goliath was challenging the armies of Israel and uh, David uh, went out with a sling and some stones and 
uh, trusting God, was able to defeat Goliath, even though he had caused all of the armies to quake in fear. Well, it took a while to rid the uh, Palestinian region of the the uh, foreign invaders. Well, it depends on how you look at who's foreign and who's invading. But at any rate, uh, they were trying to get the Philistines back out of the land. And at one point, the Philistines uh, were occupying the region of Bethlehem. And David was out in the hill country leading some of the campaigns to free Judah again from the hands of the Philistines. And one day, battle-weary and fatigued and thinking of his hometown that was now under enemy occupancy, David said aloud, Oh, oh, what I would give if I could just have a drink of fresh water from the well in Bethlehem. Well, some of his brave, loyal soldiers overheard him. And that night when they went to sleep, these three soldiers left the camp quietly and they snuck over to Bethlehem and snuck behind the enemy lines and they dipped a pitcher of water out of the well at Bethlehem and they brought it back to David the next morning. And David, realizing what they had done and the, the risk to which they had gone and put their lives on the line to bring him water from the well, did a horrifying thing. He poured it out on the ground. He said, I can't drink this water that has been obtained at such great sacrifice and bravery. It's an offering to the Lord. I'm going to pour it out as a libation, an offering to the Lord, because this has cost such a great price. And so he offered that up. It's interesting that quite similarly, some thousand or so years later, as Jesus was beginning his earthly ministry, the scripture says that he appeared in the temple on the day of the great feast, the last day of the great feast. This feast was the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall of the year. It was the time of harvest, and it was also a celebration where all of Israel... Can't you see how festive this would be, how neat it would be, where all the families would pitch a tent in their yard or on their roof, and they would leave their comfortable dwelling, and they would go live in the tents for a whole week. It was like a national campout. And they would spend the whole week celebrating and enjoying the harvest, and it was called the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was to remind them of the 40 years that their ancestors had spent wandering in the wilderness in the desert, living in tents, and how God had provided for them and met their need day after day, providing the manna from heaven. And so they would pitch these tents and they would celebrate the harvest. And then on the last day, it was a festive occasion, they would meet in the temple or tabernacle area. And the priest among Many other things that happened would take a pitcher of water and pour it out as an offering to the Lord that he had provided uh, water for them and food and all the things that went with the necessary sustenance of life. 
And on that last day of the feast, the scripture says, Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, stood up and said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and let him drink. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And this, John says, he spoke of the Holy Spirit who was to be poured out and given uh, to those who followed him, for as yet the Holy Spirit had not been given. You may be interested to know that it seems odd, perhaps, that we are studying the birth of Christ at the end of September, 1st of October. But what you may not realize is this is the precise time of year that he was born. The Roman church equated it with Christmas and some other things, December 25th, and put some things in there together. And it doesn't matter. It's okay that you celebrate it whenever we want to commemorate his birth. But in actual fact, Jesus was born in the fall of the year about the time of the harvest. If you do the chronology and the number of Passovers and this great feast day that he attended at the beginning of his three and a half year ministry, and you do the math, he was born most likely the end of September, the 1st of October. So see, we're right on target with our scripture study. At the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, as God himself came to tabernacle among us and pitch his tent in our midst and show us his own character in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the living water and offers us the water from which we will never thirst again. Bethlehem is located in Judea or Judah, and our Lord Jesus Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir of the throne of David, the great king who was promised. When you put all of those things together and begin to think about it, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He was born in the house of bread. I am the living water, which has rich heritage in Bethlehem. I am the door of the sheep, the home of the shepherds. I am the good shepherd. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he is a king from the line of King David. All of those prophecies and all of that rich symbolism are met in Jesus Christ in the town of Bethlehem. You see why Micah prophesied and why God ordained that he should be born there. Because it is rich in its symbolic meaning, portraying the whole life of Christ. And there is no question that they would know where to find the Lamb of God. There are some interesting features 
in the genealogy of Jesus. Luke traces the history of Joseph all the way back to Adam. Matthew traces it all the way back uh, past King David. We recognize that while Jesus had no direct relationship to either Mary or Joseph, yet both of them were the designated of God to be his human parents. And it was from them that his Jewish history and heritage would have been um, established. And it was Joseph that relates him to the kingly line of David. In fact, we're going to find out more about this next week, but as Joseph went to his hometown, his family home of Bethlehem, to be registered for the Roman census, he probably returned to the very area which was owned by Boaz and his immediate progeny, which would have been in this northern region near the Tower of Migdal. And we'll find out next week a little more about the unique customs surrounding that that caused Jesus to end up in a lambing place instead of in the house. But that's for next week. But at any rate, um, Joseph goes to the family home of David of the kingly line. But Mary, if you uh, analyze her history unless she married out of the clan, which is possible, but we're not given any indication in Scripture that that was so. All of her family were from the Aaronic line of the priesthood. And so his earthly mother was from the lineage of Aaron, and his earthly father was of the lineage of David, the priest and the king. But in the time of Christ, as the Jews were anticipating a Messiah, they were looking for one who would be not just an ordinary political deliverer, but one who would be a worker of miracles, one who would do amazing things and would speak authoritatively with the words of God. And they had come to call that one they were expecting the prophet. Not a prophet, but the prophet. And so when they questioned John the Baptist and said to him, Are you Messiah? And he said, No. Are you the prophet? And he says, No. Because he was not that one who was coming in the name of the Lord that would be the prophet and the Messiah and the mighty king and the deliverer. But they knew when they called the wise men, when Herod called the wise men of Israel to come and explain to him where the king of the Jews would be born. Where is this Messiah child going to come from? They said, why, Bethlehem, of course, because the prophet Micah has told us that the Messiah will come from Bethlehem, who is the prophet. I find it interesting in the birth of Christ that we have the prophet, the priest, and the king. He is all three 
together at once in one person. But how is it that he came to be born in Bethlehem? I mean, when you think about it, what are the chances that the Messiah would just happen to be born in the town predicted hundreds of years before his birth? This raises an interesting question about biblical prophecy. Is biblical prophecy predictive or is it prescriptive? And what I mean by that is, when God gives us advance information, does he do that simply because he knows how it's going to turn out? Or does he do that because he is causing it to turn out according to his purposes? I suppose you could make an argument for both, because if he knows what he's going to do, then he knows what he's going to do. And so you could say, well, it is both predictive and prescriptive. But I suggest to you this morning that God is the author of history, that he is behind history. Nothing is going to go off the wire or get out of control from the one who never sleeps or slumbers. Luke begins by telling us that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of all the inhabited earth and it was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And yet Luke is about to tell us a story that precisely fits the predictive prophecies of Scripture and uniquely fits the symbolic foreshadowing of the entire life and mission of Jesus Christ. Who is Caesar Augustus? Well, he's the head of the Roman Empire at the moment. His very name, Augustus, means God and Savior of the world. Very interesting for a Roman emperor to have a name that means world Savior or world God. The Romans had a tendency to deify their emperors and to worship them somewhat during their tenure as the emperor. But Luke is letting us know that Caesar Augustus was not above the God of heaven who rules heaven and earth. That even Caesar was ruled by God. Because who would guess? Roman census were somewhat unpredictable. They were more or less a generation apart. They occurred whenever the Caesar or whoever was in charge decided they needed a nose count. The purpose was to identify all the males for military service. It was kind of like a registering for the draft. Except the Jews happened to be exempt from the draft because of their uh, religion. I'm not suggesting they're pacifists. They would have fought Rome in a heartbeat. <laughs> but they were exempt from Roman military service because of their convictions. 
However, there was also the business of the head tax. Now, this was not a huge tax. They uh, simply charged each family member a denarius as a head tax in the Roman Empire. Wouldn't you like it if our federal income taxes were just a denarius per person? A denarius is one day's wage. Wouldn't you like it if you have a family of five and you just had to pay five days' wages of taxes to the federal government? That'd be cool, huh? Right now it takes, I don't know, what's the tax day, June 15th or something? It takes a while. We spend the first half of the year paying taxes to Caesar. But anyway, that's another story. Um, but there was not such a big deal about the taxation because it wasn't that big a deal for Rome. It was just kind of like, let's count the noses. But in order to do so, they wanted to be sure that they had uh, people kind of connected back with their family and they could follow the history. And for the Jews, that was very important to track their historical progress. So Caesar just happened to decide that he would have a census this year when Mary was toward the end of her pregnancy. Not. He was motivated by God to call for this census. And we're told by Luke that it was when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, it was the first census taken under Quirinius' governorship. If you study outside of the messages and you go home and, and you do some background research, you won't read very far before you hit some commentary that says there's all sorts of problems surrounding Luke's statement. Because Quirinius did not actually become the governor of Syria until A.D. 6. Jesus was born in B.C. 6. That's 12 years apart, if you know how the timeline works. So, how is it that Luke brings up Quirinius as governor 12 years before he was governor? And you start reading the commentators, and they're all bickering back and forth with one another. And uh, those who are more persuaded that the Bible is full of mistakes say, Aha! Luke made a mistake. He's not very intelligent. He, he messed up here. And you can't trust anything Luke says. But Luke is a very, very careful historian. He tells Theophilus that he has carefully and meticulously researched and interviewed eyewitnesses about all the things that he has written about. So he's not a sloppy guy when it comes to doing his research. He's trained as a physician. That's his background. He has a scientific mind. He's not one to just kind of let things go without some details. So how do we end up with Quirinius being governor of Syria at this particular time? And what we find out is that Caesar Augustus, whenever it came to thorny issues, uh, politically dicey situations, would appoint a trusted and loyal overseer to go in and take care of things. And nothing could be more dicey than telling all the Jews it was time to count their noses again, especially if you were Rome. And so... Quirinius had proven his worth in a number of campaigns and had become 
even though he had no royal lineage to the, to the Caesars, he had become very trusted by Rome and trusted by Caesar Augustus in particular. And so when it came time to do the census of the region of Palestine and Syria, he appointed Quirinius to go in 6 B.C., to that area and oversee the census. Now, there's still gaps that we don't understand, but I'll tell you what I do with them. You can do what you wish. But anytime you have eyewitness testimony of something that happened 15 or 20 years ago and you can't square it entirely with all the documentation, it doesn't mean that the eyewitnesses were wrong. It just means that maybe what they remember wasn't written down. It's interesting to talk to some of the old-timers around McHenry that have been around a while. They can tell you stories that, well, you might not find in the newspaper archives or things like that, but they actually happened. And uh, there are other eyewitnesses that can verify it. But a hundred years from now, no one will be able to verify it. We have no idea what happened. Uh, we do know that Caesar Augustus sent Quirinius to Syria to oversee this particular census. And who knows, maybe the local governor got so miffed that he wasn't trusted that he took a vacation. And Quirinius was actually in charge of the whole place for a time. I don't know. What we do know is that Luke very naturally says to the people of his day who would have known the history... This is the first census when Quirinius was in charge, when he was appointed in the governorship. And it dates the time of the birth of Christ to about 6 B.C. If you're trying to do the math and say, wait a minute, I thought he would have been born at like 0 B.C. How did that happen? Well, the calendar got off. You have to remember that our calendar was not designed or made until about a thousand years A.D. In the, in the Middle Ages, medieval times, and that they did pretty well, all things considered, but they were off a little bit. Because as we go back historically, we know that Herod died in about 4 B.C., and he was living when Jesus was born. And if you put it all together, we discover that Jesus was born about the time that Quirinius was appointed to oversee this census. What does that tell us about the birth of Christ? It tells me that we have a God who is able to control the Caesars, who is able to guide the governors, who can orchestrate the course of history to accomplish his purposes. Do you think you can trust a God like that? Do you think you can put your hope and confidence in a God who can move the minds of unbelievers who are in power, who think they're in charge, but they are still doing the will of the one who controls the heavens and the earth? God Almighty who rules and orchestrates according to his purposes. I can trust a God like that. I'm the apple of his eye. 
He has set his affection upon me. He purchased me with precious blood, blood of of a lamb without spot or blemish, the blood of Jesus Christ. I belong to him. He has loved me with an everlasting love. And you. And there is nothing, as the song goes, every joy or trial traced upon our dial by the Son of Love. Every joy or trial comes from above. God is in charge of our lives and our days are secure in His hands. I'm greatly comforted by that. I admit to you there are mysteries. There are things I don't get. Sometimes I scratch my head and say, wow, I don't understand this, but the one who loves me is still watching over me. And if he has to move the president to start an action that gets me where I need to be, he's capable of doing that. I can trust a God who can move the Caesars to do his bidding. Well, I hope you're getting excited about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Next week, more interesting things about his actual birth and what happened and what all of that symbolism means. And then the week after that, the shepherds and their visit. And we're right at the time of year when he would have been born. We'll kind of celebrate Christmas in December as an afterthought. Because this is the time when Jesus came to tabernacle in our midst. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Encourage us by it. Stir our hearts to have confidence and trust in you. The stars, the sun and the moon obey your command. So do the kings and princes of the world. And the presidents and rulers and legislatures. even when the enemy seems to be guiding and driving the forces of history, you are the one who, like the ocean, sets the boundaries. You govern and control the limits and extents. And nothing can take you by surprise or catch you unaware. Thank you that we are safe in the hollow of your hand. In Jesus' name, amen.